This is Dominic Preziosi. As the month of April came to a close, New York City was showing signs of progress in emerging from the worst of the COVID-19 crisis, with the number of new infections, hospitalizations, and deaths all decreasing. Still, the toll over the past eight weeks has been high, with more than 18,000 New Yorkers succumbing to the virus and hundreds of thousands infected. A little more than half of all New Yorkers say they know someone who has died from it. For this episode, we wanted to hear from people who've been dealing with the impact of the pandemic in New York. So we have three guests today. Paul Saunders, a cardiothoracic surgeon at Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn. Zach Prezuti, founder of Thrive for Life, a nonprofit serving incarcerated and formerly incarcerated individuals in the New York area. And Father Robert Mbelli, who lives in a home for retired priests in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. This is the Commonweal Podcast. So I'm here with Griffin Olenek, an assistant editor at Commonweal and producer of the Commonweal podcast. Hi, Griffin. Hey, Dominic. So uh, we had the good fortune a couple of weeks ago to be able to run into each other in Brooklyn and in, in maintaining safe social distancing, we, we got to talking about what we might want to do for the podcast in terms of addressing the coronavirus crisis in some sense. And this episode that you'll be hearing soon is now growth of our conversations. Yeah. So we were curious as we, you know, we sort of walk along your street in Brooklyn, you know, we know a lot of what it's like inside of our own homes. We've seen the emptiness and the desolation around the city, but we really wanted to know what other people were experiencing in different sectors. You know, people have been affected in different ways. So we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a medical professional, somebody who's on the front lines of the medical crisis, a person who's involved in social work in one of the less economically well-off neighborhoods in the city, and uh, a person in a retirement community. And so we were able to identify these three individuals, Dr. Paul Saunders, uh, Zach Pizzuti of Ignacio House in the Bronx, and Father Robert Mbelli. And we just asked them about their stories uh, and what they've been seeing. So why don't we take a listen to those three interviews? So Dominic, tell us about Dr. Paul Saunders. Well, Paul Saunders is a cardiothoracic surgeon at a hospital in Brooklyn called Maimonides, and I was eager to talk to him because he was featured first on ABC News as a person of the week in a very interesting way. He specializes in a procedure called ECMO, which a number of the most severely suffering coronavirus patients required when they were in intensive care. And I thought, well, this would be an interesting person to talk to uh, because of Maimonides Hospital in particular, which sits at the nexus of a number of different New York City communities. It borders Sunset Park, Borough Park in Brooklyn. And so it serves a very diverse community of patients, Latinos, Orthodox Jewish people, Asian Americans, mostly from working class families and backgrounds. He also came down with the coronavirus himself, which I thought would make him a very interesting person to speak with. Well, sounds fascinating. Let's take a listen. So I'm Paul Saunders. I'm a cardiothoracic surgeon at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn. I serve here at Maimonides as the director of mechanical circulatory support, which means that I I perform procedures for uh, advanced heart failure, which would be implantable left ventricular assist devices or essentially implanted heart pumps in people with heart failure. And I also perform what's called ECMO, which, is, which stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, 
which essentially is a form of heart-lung bypass, which is used for people in profound respiratory or cardiac failure. So Maimonides serves a very disparate population in terms of socioeconomic uh, status and geographic and ethnic origin. We are situated very close to Brooklyn's Chinatown. We're also situated very close to a large Latino population and Central American population, as well as being situated within one of the larger Orthodox Jewish populations in New York City. And we're also, again, uh, serve a large uh, Russian population, large Southeast Asian population. So we have a, a very, very large number of ethnic groups and geographic origins at our hospital and many, many languages spoken here and translated here. Can you describe your experience contracting the coronavirus? So Maimonides started taking care of patients with COVID-19 in early March, uh, along with the rest of the hospitals in New York City. And given our location here in Brooklyn, in the Borough Park area of Brooklyn, we had a very large number of cases very early, one of the largest numbers of cases of any of the hospitals in New York City. In my capacity, taking care of these patients with very, very profound lung failure as part of the ECMO program. I was consulted early on a lot of these cases as they started to arrive at our hospital, very sick, obviously, as we all know, a lot of them getting intubated, put on ventilators. So I was called into to the care of a lot of these patients early on. Also, as working in our critical care units, I was involved with the care of a lot of these patients early on and trying to mobilize our hospital response to increase our critical care volume, which essentially tripled in the space of about two weeks. During this period of time, obviously, everyone was very concerned about contracting COVID-19, and we were all luckily given lots of protective equipment to wear, and we took this all very seriously. About two weeks or so into this process, I started to notice some symptoms myself. I started to notice uh, body aches, chills, feeling fatigued, feeling like I was getting the flu. This started very, very mild at first, persisted for a few days, as we're, you know, I was religiously taking my temperature, but my temperature actually was never elevated. But when I, when the symptoms didn't really go away, I stayed out of work. I was lucky enough to get tested and did test positive for, for COVID-19. You know, my symptoms never became very critical. I was able to just basically stay at home, fight through the body aches and fatigue and was able to recover relatively quickly. And once I was able to clear my quarantine period, if you will, I was able to come back to work. Could you describe the difference in the atmosphere and environment at the hospital between the time you left work and the time you returned? In other words, was there a notable increase or spike in cases or what, what did the environment become like in the time you were absent from the hospital itself? So in the short time that uh, COVID really affected our hospital, like other hospitals in New York City, basically all normal hospital operations stopped. All elective cases were canceled. The proportion of COVID positive patients to negative patients exploded to the point that there felt like there was very little going on in the hospital outside of COVID. As I said, our ICUs tripled in size. We got an influx of new ventilators, thankfully. We had a lot of patients on ventilators, you know, about three times more than we would normally have in a busy day, which created a lot of capacity issues in the hospital. But the whole hospital essentially became a COVID treating hospital. So on, in a very short period of time, we had to transform our entire hospital operations to manage this brand new disease. 
And it's a testament to the, the functionality and the success of our hospital that we were able to do this pretty successfully and pretty rapidly. You know, we're already in a phase now where the cases are plateauing and it's starting to, we're starting to now face the prospect of how do we transform and transition into the next phase of this whole process, which again, no one's really clear how that's going to work out. Can you talk about the work of your colleagues at the hospital and how they've been holding up and the mutual support, I guess, they give one another and what the general experience is of of working in this kind of a crisis situation with coworkers. It's been pretty remarkable. The hospital has really transformed in a very short period of time to doing what we normally do on a regular day, which is taking care of lots and lots of different kinds of conditions and different patients with different problems, to really treating a large number of patients with all the same disease. And it means that doctors and nurses who are used to taking care of, let's say, you know, orthopedic surgery needs or pediatrics or regular surgical needs are now sort of enlisted and mobilized into taking care of patients with COVID-19. So orthopedic surgeons, pediatricians, OBGYN doctors, nurses, et cetera, are now all doing things that are outside their comfort levels. But you know, in this kind of situation, it's sort of all hands on deck. Everyone has to pitch in and do the best they can. And that's true of a lot of hospitals all over the, you know, especially in the New York area and in the country. We also, but really everyone has done an amazing job at sort of keeping things functional and rising to the challenge that we're faced with. We did get an influx of traveling nurses, so nurses who generally travel around the country working different locations because we were so short-staffed in terms of nurses. Obviously, if you're going to triple the amount of critical care beds in two weeks, it's easy to make beds, but you don't exactly have the staff to manage all those patients. So that was a, a critical of critical importance for us to increase our staffing levels. So we, in addition to using physicians and different locations and specialties that outside their comfort zone, we were able to get a lot more nurses and extra staff in all kinds of different areas. So nursing, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, and on and on and on to help out with the surge of patients and the different needs. Is this something that when you were in med school or either as a resident or an intern or anything, or or even through your training that you ever thought you might have to deal with? Does Was there anything in your training and in your experience that maybe suggested that you'd be facing this one day? We are all sort of aware in the back of our minds as physicians and nurses and people working in the healthcare field of, you know, the possibilities of epidemics or, you know, infectious pandemics. I don't think anyone ever really ever thought that we would actually experience what we've experienced. There are always contingency plans and we know about them in the back of our minds. And every time there's a spike of something like I I was practicing and doing the same sort of thing during the H1N1 pandemic in 2009. So I remember that, but that was absolutely nowhere near what the severity of this current disease is. I also was part of the response at September 11, 2001. I was a surgery resident at Bellevue and was part of the teams that went down to ground zero in the first two days helping out at the site and helping out at Bellevue for the next many weeks. So it, it does feel similar to that in terms of the mobilization that we all went through to sort of transform hospitals into receiving hospitals for what we thought would be a massive, massive loss of life. It turned out to be, fortunately and unfortunately, not quite as devastating as we had worried about that morning. But there were still, you know, obviously still many, many patients to take care of and lots of lots of things to do. But it does feel similar to that in the way that we had to transform medical, you know, our hospital systems 
very rapidly to meet with a you know an unexpected crisis i'm wondering paul if you could talk about something some specific event or encounter that has been either particularly inspiring to you at, during this pandemic or has left a serious lasting impression on you in terms of the work you're doing at the hospital or in terms of of, of your colleagues everyone's working really hard and you know my colleagues in all different fields are working really hard and i think that a lot of us it's not going to hit us until this is all over you know we're still very much in the thick of this it's become i wouldn't say it's become routine but it's become a little more the new normal right now and we're all instead of doing what we normally did every day for the last month we've been doing nothing but this so i think over time it's going to hit everybody what's in terms of how this impacts us i think for me one of the things that i re- that will stay with me was, I guess, the first day I was cleared from sort of isolation and home quarantine to come back to work. My symptoms had resolved. I'd been afebrile for three days and I was able to come back to work on that day. But what prompted me to come back that day in particular was there was a patient who needed ECMO, a young patient who needed to go on ECMO. So I came literally back to work and my very first thing was to go and take care of this patient and put him on ECMO. I was struck by that because not only had I just had this same, you know, both the patient and the physician shared the same disease process. Clearly, mine was far, far less severe than this patient, but I identified with them in a way that, you know, again, that could have been me had things turned out differently, but at least I identified with that in a way that I had not ever done before. So it was very striking to me, that whole process. And I'd never been in that quite same position before. I've been talking with uh, Dr. Paul Saunders uh, at Mamadides Hospital in the Borough Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. Paul, thanks so much for taking time out to speak with us today. I I know you're busy and and good luck uh, with, with your work. Sure. Thanks very much. Happy to do it. So I'm here with Regina Much, our assistant editor. Hi. Hi, Regina. Thanks. And why don't you uh, tell us about who you interviewed for this episode? So we've talked before on the podcast about the vulnerability of prison populations to infection by the coronavirus. So we wanted to talk with someone who works with the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people at this time. And already that's a group of people who face a lot of difficulties, like finding housing, getting education or job training, sort of in normal times, quote normal. So we talked with Zach Prezuti, who's the founder of Thrive for Life. And in particular, we talked with him about Ignacio House in the Bronx. And that's a house of study where 20 formerly incarcerated people currently live. And Zach talked to us about their work and how they're coping with the challenges presented by the pandemic. Okay, thanks, Regina. Why don't we take a listen? I'm Zach Brasuti. I'm a Jesuit of the Northeast province of the Society of Jesus. And I'm the founder of Thrive for Life Prison Project, which is a prison ministry in the Archdiocese of New York. Ignacio House is one of the works of Thrive for Life Prison Projects. It's a continuity of care for people who are re-entering from incarceration. Ignacio House is a house of studies in partnership with local universities and colleges as we accompany our brothers as they re-enter from many years of incarceration so that they can continue the good work of studying that they began while they were behind the wall. 
happening right now at Ignacio House? What are residents facing right now? One of the things that I think is is very clear is is that in the midst of this pandemic, there are groups of people that are more heavily impacted than others, and it's not surprising that the the poor would be among those who are again re re victimized by this uh, global pandemic. Right now at Ignacio House, we have a full house of men who have re-entered from incarceration, continuing their studies with our local universities and colleges. And one of the devastating realities right now for our residents at Ignacio House is the brothers are unemployed. They are not able to go to work as they would like. A blessing in the midst of all this is the collective shared wisdom among the residents at Ignacio House. They thought, you know, we have been through worse that most of them have, have spent time in solitary confinement for many years. And they realized that since we've been through worse, let's make the best of this. Let's, let's channel our creativity and our innovation to do something for one another and for the greater community. So right now at Ignacio House, we're working on building a garden in our backyard. Everyone is constructing uh, flower beds and pots and sheds and raking dirt. And there's something very healing that's taking place um, in the midst of this project. That sort of plays into the idea of Ignacio House not being a shelter, but a community. What's the difference? And what does that look like in practice? Exactly. Ignacio House is not a a shelter at all. It's far from it. It's a community of people who are growing in mutual love and admiration. Our goal is to build a culture of, of hospitality, a culture where people are welcome, welcome to be themselves, welcome to pursue their goals, welcome to dream dreams uh, for themselves, and welcome to continue those good studies that they began while they're locked up in an environment within their home where they can thrive. How did the residents come to live there? How did they hear about Ignacio House? So our residents come to Ignacio House either through our retreat programming that takes place behind the walls. And those retreats are offered by our spiritual mentors, and they are uh, parishioners of Jesuit parishes throughout the uh, New York area. They're trained in the exercises, and they're sent in groups. So one way that they come to um, Ignacio House is through referrals from our retreat programming. And then the, the second way that residents come to Ignacio House is through our partnerships with local universities. So NYU, Columbia, St. Francis in Brooklyn, Manhattan College, these are good places of higher education that are offering higher ed at the margins. And many of their program participants want to continue the the studies and the rigor of education once they are paroled or once they are released. So we are not a city shelter and we're not a shelter, but we're also unlike other reentry organizations in the area where we are specifically aimed at helping and accompanying individuals as they get back on their feet after incarceration, but with the tools of of higher education or with uh, good job skills training as well. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that the the pandemic is re-victimizing the residents and that, so it's hard for your residents to find housing and work in quote, normal times. Why is that? And how are they being re-victimized now? For many of our, our brothers, they never got a first chance. It's not about a second chance because there have been so many barriers 
uh, for them right from the beginning of their life, be it education, be it housing, be it in, in employment, right from the gate. But also after their incarceration, these barriers are even more perpetuated. They're living their sentence forever with barriers to certain jobs, barriers to where they can the, they can live. So these social structures are just are just perpetuated because of serving time behind the walls. Well, Thrive for Life Prison Project is committed to tearing down those barriers, and we're doing it through a ministry of encounter, a ministry of a a ministry of relationship, being with one another, knowing one another, growing in love and mutual admiration for one another. What social justice changes do you hope to see come out of this response to the pandemic? How will we treat our neighbors differently? Well, I hope that Ignacio House can stand as an image that we can do this together. You know, this pandemic has been completely indiscriminate, right? Well, the solutions that come from this pandemic need to be just as indiscriminate and need to particularly focus on those that are most vulnerable and those who are who are at the margin. So we need not fear who people are. We need not fear what a person's background is or what their criminal record is. We we need not fear uh, people's racial racial background, sexual orientation, whatever it might be that's just constantly the jargon that separates us from one another. But what can bring us together is our commitment to one another and our, our human family and our commitment to to thriving together. And we can only do that in community. We can only do that in community because it's in community that we really find ourselves and know that we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves and our own our own desires and self-absorption. Zach, what can listeners do to help Thrive for Life at Ignacio House? Oh, we are we are more in need of your help than ever. So please log on to thriveforlife.org, T-H-R-I-V-E-F-O-R-L-I-F-E dot org, thriveforlife.org. And if you can financially contribute right now, we are we're facing financial needs more than ever. Like I said, 100% of our our residents are uh, without employment. Um, we're trying to get food on the table uh, every night. We're trying to support the building of this garden in our backyard so that we can um, help grow vegetables for the, for the neighborhood. And we also would like to build a learning center in one of the basements of our house so that our students can have a place to go study, have their um, distance learning opportunities, and build a space that for generations of residents at Ignacio House can have a place to go to, to learn and, and to thrive. Zach, thank you so much for talking with us. So I'm back with Griffin, and Griffin, you got to speak with Father Robert Mbelli. That's right. So Father Mbelli has written a beautiful meditative piece for the May issue of Commonweal called Privileged and Vulnerable, in which he describes his life inside of a retirement community for priests in the Riverdale section of the Bronx in New York City. And that's exactly what we spoke about, the ways in which he finds himself now in both a privileged position because of where he is, because of the extra time he has to pray, but also a vulnerable position because, you know, living with people of advanced age that are at greater risk of contracting and dying from coronavirus, he's also had to confront that challenge. Okay, thanks. Let's take a listen.
I'm Father Robert Imbelli, a priest of the Archdiocese of New York, living at the uh, Cardinal Egan residence, which is the retirement residence for New York priests in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. What's been the experience of the community there these past several weeks? What's been happening? About three weeks ago, three people were taken to the hospital. Amongst the 30 or so residents here, one died within a day and then two others subsequently. And one of them was tested and was found to have the, um, the virus. Three other men have been hospitalized and are still hospitalized. And to my knowledge, at least one of them and perhaps more have been tested positively uh, for the virus. The remainder of us have been pretty much under quarantine now for approximately three weeks, meaning that our meals are brought to the room, left outside the door, and then uh, the, uh, the trays picked up afterwards. Happily, we have some lovely grounds with a really splendid view of the Hudson and the Palisades. That certainly is uh, one of the great privileges, dedicated staff, grounds for walking, and lovely views. And has the community experienced other disruptions to community life? Yeah, the, in effect, uh, community life has been reduced to uh, eremitical life. I mean, we are basically uh, hermits in our individual rooms. Mass uh, has been suspended now for almost three weeks. The common meals, of course, are not taking place. And so people are pretty much living a, uh, a monastic existence. What does a typical day look like for you? Well, uh, as you know, uh, you know, priests are obligated to celebrate the liturgy of the hours. And so that has always provided me with a, a frame for my day. Uh, I always happen to be an early riser, so uh, it's not uncommon that it, uh, at 5 a.m. I will be praying the Office of Readings. And then each uh, successive hour creates for the day not only a framework, but the word that I, I've come more and more to use is uh, a rhythm for the day. I have found, even without the overt sacraments, that my spiritual experience has been more and more corporeal a sense that we are united bodily with one another, both in uh, ill, witness the virus, but also in good, that uh, we are members of one another, to use uh, St. Paul's phrase. And so I become increasingly conscious of that as I pray the Liturgy of the Hours. You write that the crisis has made you aware of how privileged and vulnerable you are. Could you explain more about what you mean? How are you both privileged and vulnerable? Yes, I mean, the privilege is certainly, uh, I mean, I'm so aware of people who are on the front lines, uh, people who uh, appear, for example, earlier in, in this podcast, people who are literally putting their bodies on the lines by tending to the sick, by reaching out, providing hospitality to the homeless. I am not on the front lines in that regard. Plus, I have meals prepared for me. So however solitary might be my eating of the meal, the meal is, uh, is nourishing and is made ready for me. I'm so conscious of the dedicated staff you know, who come in often from, uh, from a distance in order to uh, serve our needs. The vulnerability, of course, comes from 
the vulnerability of all of us in this age, but heightened by the fact that, you know, we're dealing with a more vulnerable part of the population, people who uh, are 80 and over for the most part, uh, a number of them, number of us having uh, pre-existing conditions. So that's part of what I try to mean by uh, both privileged and vulnerable. I'm so fortunate, both in my own room, you know, I have some artwork, which is really quite nourishing for me, but I have the great grace of looking out over the uh, older of the two buildings of our retirement residence, which was originally a visitation monastery, the visitation nuns, lovely building of stone surmounted by a uh, cupola with the statue of Christ with outstretched arms. So to look out my window, both by day and by night, because it's illuminated at night, to see uh, Christ beckoning, welcoming, is just a great grace. I realize once more that people shut into an apartment in the South Bronx do not have some of those uh, benefits. But even a small image, you know, which can focus one's attention and to which one can respond in a heartfelt way, I think is terribly important and nourishing, you know, in this time of relative bleakness. What would you say in, in this time of, of relative bleakness, what would you say to religious people that are struggling to make sense of this crisis? Where can they find God in these times of illness and distance and so much death? Well, that, of course, is the question that each of us is wrestling with. One approach that I take is indicated by Cardinal Newman's famous distinction between the notional and the real, that if we pray the creed, for example, you know, for the most part, we give it notional assent. We understand more or less the words. But to allow the mystery that we are professing to really impact us to make it real for ourselves is the ongoing challenge. This is not just the challenge of today, it's the perennial challenge, how to make it real for ourselves. And especially the conviction that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, just to choose one New Testament phrase, to realize that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. You know, I mentioned you know my own uh, ability to pray the uh, the liturgy of the hours, and I realize that many people don't have that luxury, that ability. But even brief prayers that call to mind God's presence in Christ. When I was in grammar school, we had the Christian Brothers, uh, the LaSalle tradition. And every hour the bell would ring and the monitor would say, let us remember that we are in the holy presence of God. Mm. And then live Jesus in our hearts. It's a practice which I've kept up for 70 plus years. So to begin every segment of the day, even as we begin a new task, or if a doctor, as we're seeing a new patient, tired as we may be, exhausted as we may be, as we greet a new guest, let us remember that we are in the presence of God. And finally, in the Office of Readings after uh, Easter, the readings have been from the book of Revelation, a challenging book, of course, a difficult book, and yet never so timely in my experience 
because it really uh, addresses a situation of profound affliction. What one of the key words in the book of Revelation is that sense of affliction, a community under duress. And yet in the midst of that, the faith in the present Christ, Christ is not distant. He's not on sabbatical, but he's acting here and now, acting in the church, which he loves. And his action is both supportive, but also challenging. The famous letters to the churches of the beginning of the book of Revelation, uh, where Christ is both sustaining, but also challenging the fidelity of the churches. And so to the extent that one can, if one can approach the book of Revelation, and of course the last two chapters, as you know, the vision of the new Jerusalem descending from God with that wonderful phrase in uh, chapter 21, and God will wipe every tear and death will be no more. What a great way to end. Father Robert, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you so much and the best to all your listeners. And you can read Father and Belly's entire piece in the May issue of Commonweal Magazine. The May issue has also just been posted live to the website in its entirety. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.